Welcome to the Religion Unplugged podcast. I'm Megan Clark, the managing editor, and here with us today is Desta Haliso, who is our London-based Ethiopian contributor. Desta is very busy. He's the coordinator for the Center for Ancient Christianity and Ethiopian Studies there. And he's also a fellow of the Center for Early African Christianity in New Haven and a visiting lecturer at the London School of Theology. He's also completed a recent book draft uh, working title of Hope for Ethiopia, um, which I just proofread and is really helpful to understand the context of Ethiopia. So if you're listening to this podcast and afterward you're thinking like, where else can I read more? Desta has a book coming on history of uh, Ethiopia, uh, you know, religious and ethnic tensions among people groups. And it's really helpful context for people like me who don't know Ethiopian history. First, I wanted to start with a little background. Um, You may have seen Desta wrote a viral piece for us um, in February that we want to talk about, and we'll get to that in a minute. So you may have seen some headlines on social media in January, like I did, that 750 or 800 Orthodox Christians were massacred in Ethiopia in November um, by Ethiopia's federal armed forces. And these reports um, were coming from various accounts and um, trickling small details from different outlets. They were not necessarily verified but it did seem like they could have happened. And this is in a region with blocked internet and where there's a war um, between local armed groups and Ethiopian defense forces that broke out in November. So this is very recent. So we asked Desta about that. He wrote about what we know and what we don't know yet, as well as some history of the conflict in Ethiopia. And then since that report, um, many other reports have come out by the Associated Press and Amnesty International uh, just a week ago and CNN as well this week that have reported various accounts of these two different massacres of horrific violence that's alleged to have taken place in the Tigray region of Northern Ethiopia. So we wanna talk about the details in those reports. Um, So Desta, let's start first with a little history. Um, It's in East Africa, a landlocked country It's surrounded by Sudan, Somalia, Kenya, Eritrea, and it's across the Red Sea from Saudi Arabia and Yemen. And it has this very ancient history. I think a lot of Christians are familiar with that. Um, Many historians agree it's one of the oldest countries in the world. It's also one of the first countries to adopt Christianity as its state religion. So can you tell us about how Ethiopia's government has changed a lot in the last century. And uh, just give us an overview of those different eras throughout history leading up to this past century and the different political parties and what their goals have been. First of all, thank you very much, Megan, for inviting me to this podcast and for allowing me to write my pieces uh, in Religion Unplugged. Uh, As you said in your introduction, um, Ethiopia is one of the oldest nations in the world with natural beauty, incredible diversity and a proud history. And I would like to answer your question by starting one of our proudest moments, um, which is the victory of Adwa. It was this week, 125 years ago, on the 2nd of March, uh, 1896, uh, that Italians were defeated in Adwa. Italians came to colonize Ethiopia, but Ethiopians from all corners and from all ethnicities came together and fought against the Italians using spears, machetes, and very basic weapons. Adwa is part of our identity, and that's how Ethiopians see uh, Tigray, how Ethiopians see Aksum and um, Adwa as well. I should probably provide an overview of how um, government has been changing since Adwa. The emperor who led our country to victory against the Italians in Adwa was Menelik II. After he died, uh, a period of turbulence ensued. His grandson, Yasu, which which means Joshua, 
became emperor, but only five years later, he was deposed and his aunt, Zoditu, was installed. And Queen Empress Zoditu died in 1930. And the last emperor, uh, Emperor Haile Selassie, uh, came to power. And he was the longest reigning emperor uh, in the history of Ethiopia, maybe in the history of Africa as well. And he was deposed in 1974 by the Ethiopian army officials. Uh, it is like what's happening in Myanmar now, just to uh, give you some context. But in Ethiopia, a general, after Haile Selassie was deposed, a general was in charge of the transitional administration and he himself was killed not long after. And then another general was in charge and he was killed as well. And then another army officer called Mangisto Haile Mariam uh, became a leader and he was so brutal and thousands of young people, most of the educated class and many others were killed. Many young people from Europe and America, many ed educated people uh, came back to Ethiopia to develop Ethiopia, but this brutal regime um, massacred them and Ethiopia lost a generation of people and started all over again. And, but very badly because basically the Soviet Union uh, and Cuba were in charge ideologically. So Ethiopia suffered under military communist rule for 17 years. And that rule ended in 1991 by another Marxist group led by Tigray People's Liberation Front. And this front organized itself as the Ethiopian People's Revolutionary Democratic Front, EPRDF. They ruled Ethiopia for until 2018. During the Haile Selassie period, and that so rule 17 years later ended by TPLF-led um, group, uh, the EPRDF. So Mangistwale Mariam left the country. Now he's, he's in Harare in Zimbabwe. He's still alive. So what were the goals of the Ethiopian People's Revolutionary Democratic Front, the EPRDF? Um, what were their main goals for reform? Well, their main goal was removing the military communist regime but they also believed that Ethiopia's problem uh, was not class, you know, as in feudalism or, or capitalism. Uh, Ethiopia's problem was to do with um, ethnicity. So uh, it was one ethnic group dominating the other. And so a lot of us in the West have heard of Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed as the 2019 Nobel Peace Prize winner. Um, and he also happens to be an evangelical Pentecostal Christian, and he won that prize for um, a lot of reforms that he did, which were seen as positive, ending a state of emergency, welcoming back a lot of these dissidents, and increasing a lot of freedoms for Ethiopians, and he ended a war with Eritrea. So what was the state of Ethiopia before he was appointed? And then how did he manage to succeed with some of these reforms? And who opposed him? First of all, it would, it would be good to be aware of who TPLF were. TPLF were a group made up of Marxist youth, basically. When they became TPLF, the Tigray People's Liberation Front, their idea was to liberate Tigray. Tigray is a region, Tigray, uh, uh, it is a reference to a people group. The TPLF wanted to liberate Tigray, uh, but then they changed their minds uh, along the way. They had some really competent leaders. I don't know if you know of Malas Zenawi, the late Malas Zenawi, who was prime minister of Ethiopia. He was the leader of TPLF. He was probably one of the most intelligent leaders in, in Africa when, when he was alive. And he and others devised mechanisms by which they could rule Ethiopia. And that was how they kind of formed EPRDF out of rebel forces from 
other ethnic groups who were rebel forces who were fighting, who were also fighting against the Ethiopian government. And um, then he and others established a political party uh, called EPRDF, as, as I said. So EPRDF took over the country in 1991. It, it became one of the most repressive regimes in, in the world. And there was so much political persecution. And because the political system was arranged along ethnic lines, all the worst in people were coming out and ethnically motivated killings were happening in many places, including universities. And Tigrayan people were being killed. They were wrongly identified with TPLF uh, because TPLF was disliked. People resented the EPRDF rule. Um, of course, TPLF was the ideological parent of EPRDF. And also, Walaita people were being killed because the prime minister at the time was from the Walaita people group. The Walaita people group are in, in the south. Youth in different regions had organized themselves and they were protesting against the government and uh, roads were blocked and the capital Addis Ababa was often under siege. And once my three children went on a school trip to an area past Awasa, about 300 kilometers away from Addis Ababa, suddenly violence broke out between um, where they were and, and Addis Ababa. So they could not travel back to Addis by bus. So the school had to fly them to Addis Ababa. It was a time of great anxiety for us, for all parents um, whose children had gone um, on a school trip. And the possibility of civil war and Ethiopia becoming a failed state was becoming a real for us. Um, Ethiopia becoming like Syria or Yemen or Somalia or, or Libya uh, was becoming quite clear. And there was fear all around. And the state of the country was one of lawlessness and violence and huge uncertainty. I think what compounded our fear and uncertainty was um, that there was a lot of disagreement within EPRDF, within the ruling party, and that led to distrust and, and division. It was then that the Prime Minister Haile Mariam Dessalegn resigned as chair of EPRDF and as Prime Minister of Ethiopia, and that was February 2018. And Abiy Ahmed then was not a well-known national figure, but he was someone who had been preparing himself to lead the country, which is uh, quite interesting. Abi claims that his mother had told him when he was seven, seven years old, he would become leader of Ethiopia. Uh, those who served in the army and the government with him uh, tell us that he openly and fairly certainly told them that he would become the prime minister of Ethiopia one day. Uh, he even told the late Prime Minister Malesenawi and his predecessor, Haile Mariam de Salin, um, that he would become Prime Minister one day. I don't know why he was afraid. It all sounds mm. very strange, but I, I think he probably believed what his mother said, and uh, he was preparing himself for, for this position for a long time. And Haile Mariam, quite interestingly, believed that Abi was the right man for the job. Uh, but because Abi was against an extremist uh, form of ethnic politics, and he was also against the, what they call the revolutionary democracy, TPLF leadership did not like uh, Abi Ahmed at all, uh, because they knew that the people of Ethiopia would accept somebody else, not someone from the TPLF party, someone who was Nantegrai. They tried uh, to bring someone in uh, instead of Abi, someone who would be obedient to them. So Haile okay. Mariam resigned in February 2018, and there was a period of agony for us. We were agonizing over, over it, and many uh, Christians were fasting and praying. Um, so February, March, and in April, Abi Ahmed was elected. Um, okay. So that was how it happened. So, 
one thing that was reported is uh, that I think is pretty agreed on is uh, the current, you can call it a war going on right now in Ethiopia started, I think November 4th, 2020. And that's when there were reports that these Tigray forces, um, armed forces fired on Ethiopia's forces. How Hmm. do we know that they fired first? And um, what's your understanding of what happened? And based on which accounts? Well, that they attacked the Ethiopian Defense Forces first was admitted by the TPLF officials themselves. They admitted that they carried out preemptive attack. One of the officials is called Sekuture Getacho. He admitted that on a TPLF-owned TV. And another official um, is called Getacho Reda. Uh, he also admitted that in an interview he gave to BBC. So that was very clear. It wasn't something that came only from the Ethiopian government. It was something that came out of the TPLF officials' mouth. I have a relative that was in the army, um, an army captain, who told me how the attack happened, uh, where he was, and how he survived and uh, what he's doing right now. So I have a you know, first-hand account from, from my own relative. Actually, he was outside Tigray and then he went to Eritrea. Uh, he couldn't get back into Tigray. He was taken to Eritrea. In Eritrea, they regrouped um, themselves. That is the Ethiopian army because they, many of them were um, detained all the officers, almost all uh, the officers of the Northern Command were detained, but some officers escaped, uh, some commanders and um, some divisions uh, escaped to Eritrea and they regrouped uh, in Eritrea and they returned and fought against the TPLF forces. That was how it happened. And they had to bring Um, other commands from other parts of the country as well, uh, because the Northern Command had been weakened uh, by the TPLF forces, and quite a lot of weapons had been uh, taken by the TPLF forces as well, and many uh, were killed. And over 800 uh, women soldiers were detained as well, and many of them were raped, and that was what I heard from my relative. Uh, And some were killed in horrific circumstances. And who was reporting that information as well? Um, that I don't think that was as picked up in the Western media. No, uh, in, in Western media, they, they don't even interview uh, the Ethiopian army. I don't think um, what the Ethiopian government officials say is taken into account. So, yeah, I think they're very suspicious of the Ethiopian government um, yeah. based on these reports that two different massacres that occurred in November uh, 28th, around 28th, 29th. There's one alleged atrocity against Orthodox Christians in Aksum and another one in Dingalat that was at a historic monastery. And both of these incidences occurred um, right before a festival honoring Mary, right? Um, yeah. Mary, who, you know, they believe is mother of God. And so what do we know about those alleged atrocities and what do we not know? We can get into the details of, of different reports if you want. So there's an Associated Press report that cites a deacon in Axum saying that an estimated 800 people were killed, um, according to this deacon. And yeah. they include a few other witness descriptions of the attack. And uh, did you find those witness accounts credible? And I know you found something on Twitter regarding this article that you found disturbing. Can you describe that? I do not believe that the reports of amnesty Human Rights Watch, and even CNN um, and AP are based on credible and incontrovertible evidence. For example, um, first, I think you mentioned the 
telegraph report, for example. The telegraph <clears throat> report about people uh, who were killed in civilian clothes is, you know, disturbing. I was, I was disturbed and I was saddened by that. Um, but at the moment, uh, the TPLF forces in some areas are fighting in civilian clothes. Um, uh, and my question would be, how could this reporter be sure that these people who were in civilian clothes were not TPLF fighters? Thousands just, to, of just to give the background to the listeners, the Telegraph article that you're referring to, it says that they obtained footage that appears to show slaughtered civilians and Ethiopian yeah. soldiers walking around their corpses and commenting that they should have finished off some of these survivors. Um, it was very brutal and, uh, you know, it's like a cell phone footage that they obtained. Yeah. If, yeah. if, if those who were killed were civilians, I would be absolutely horrified by that kind of attitude. But if they were TPLF fighters who were fighting against the Ethiopian forces, then the killing happened due to uh, fighting between two, two combatant groups. If the, T, uh, sorry, the Telegraph reporter can be absolutely certain that those who were in civilian clothes who were killed were indeed civilians, then it was a war crime. I would, I would take that as a war crime. But thousands of militias in civilian clothes were armed even before the 4th of November. So we, we know that. And as I said earlier, my cousin, when I was in Ethiopia, he told me that sometimes they'd be called to different parts of Tigray where TPLF remnant forces are, were spotted and they would fight um, you know, during the course of the day. And uh, when he came back, he, he called me and he said, oh, I was fighting in uh, Wukro area today against TPLF forces and I'm really tired. So there, was, there is fighting you know, happening still against TPLF uh, fighters, and they are in civilian clothes, many of them. So how could we be sure that those who were killed were not TPLF fighters? So I think even the, uh, the Telegraph report must be treated with uh, skepticism until it is absolutely verified that those who were killed were civilians. What about and the AP that, report? Did you find that report credible? So the AP report um, was obtained through, through someone who lives in America, a man called Alula Salomon, who asked people around if they could find someone who could, you know, who could be a witness to the AP reporter. Um, and that's pretty normal to do. That's like indeed, a you know, yeah. method to find witnesses, yeah. Yeah, but uh, my, my problem would be, okay, Alula Salomon is a well-known uh, TPLF activist um, in the States, in, in, in the West. So he found someone who could be interviewed by the AP reporter. And then the AP, AP reporter would need to interview someone from the other side as well. So if the Ethiopian forces or Eritrean forces or Amhara forces killed people, um, then AP would need to interview the Ethiopian authorities, for example. So if they did not interview them, then they should present the report in that way, uh, rather than as if it was as if it was a war crime. The CNN report cited twelve witnesses and Dingalat and 20 relatives of the dead. And they had some satellite photos that they said experts had examined, you know, to see that there were some, what looked like burial grounds. Um, and, you know, that video to me and that article seemed pretty credible. Did you find any reason to doubt those reports? Mariam Dengalat, I have never been there, but Mariam Dengalat is highly inaccessible. 
it was a mountainous place, only trained mountain climbers could go, could go there, um, could go up there, you know, could climb there. Um, it's not possible to hide in Mariam Dengalat, you know, it's a, it's a very difficult uh, place to get to. I think for the first time, I think it was in the 16th century that someone um, could climb there. Uh, also the video recording, uh, <laughs> to me, it was it must it was done on in doubtful very doubtful circumstances the video cnn showed had the date september 2018 at the beginning later on they removed that so where did september 2018 come from so that makes me think that the video itself must have been uh, cut and, and put together, you know, different uh, pieces uh, were put together and it raised, raised doubt in me that, um, I, that the video itself may have been doctored. Um, also, one man who was being interviewed was being told by another man to say that 256 people were killed. So you heard that in the in the video yes, in, in, that, in, in the Grinia. audio. So it was translated for me. I don't speak to Grinia, but it was mm -hmm. translated for me. So the, the man who was videoing told the fixer to tell the man who was being interviewed that uh, he should say 256 people. So the man went there and told him. So CNN cut cut that bit off. So they didn't show that. So they only showed sanitized uh, kind of uh, bits of the video. So all that <clears throat> led me to doubt the credibility of the CNN report and have CNN verified all this on the ground? Was the reporter there? Uh, for example, in the Situation Room, I, he used this report to claim that Eritrea and Ethiopia waged war against Tigray. Why would Ethiopia want to wage a war against Tigray? Tigrayans are our sisters and brothers. Ethiopians regard them as their brothers and sisters. Why would they want to wage war against Tigray? I don't understand why people identify the people of Tigray with TPLF. TPLF is a party, it's a group um, that organized itself under certain ideology, but the people of Tigray are the people of Tigray. Of course, the TPLF people came out of the people of Tigray, but identifying the two is like identifying the Republican Party with the American people or the Democratic Party with the American people. That's not true. That's not right. The, the main concerns, basically, I'm summarizing you, are that how do we know that these witness accounts are coming from credible witnesses? And a lot of people, including the U.S. State Department, have called for an independent investigation to understand what exactly has happened. Yeah. Um, and so Amnesty's report, for example, uh, from February 26th, they said they, they interviewed 41 witnesses about a massacre in Aksum on November 28th and 29th. And so some of the critics of that report have said there was a live stream video from the church that showed the festival happening. It didn't seem like they were disturbed. I think that stream was on the 30th. You know, the Amnesty Report, um, if, if I may, let me raise questions. First, Amnesty's report said that the Eritrean forces did a house-to-house -house search and killed young people. It said nothing about the massacre of 750 people, for example, which Martin Plout first claimed took place while the Aksumites, the people of Aksum, were fighting against those who were trying to loot the Ark of the Covenant. There is a belief that the Ark of the Covenant exists in, in Aksum. And according to Plout, they were, these people were brought out of St. Mary's Zion Church and they were shot outside. And Martin Plautz is a journalist who is no longer at the BBC, but used to be at the BBC, who is That's uh, right. seen as a credible journalist. And he was the, one of the, I think he was the first person to report 
750 people were killed in accident. Correct. Yeah. But that that is not mentioned in the amnesty report. Why did they not mention that? So that would be my question. They should either say Martin Plout's report, it was incorrect, therefore we haven't included it, or they should they should include it if it is true. And secondly, the report, their report says that the massacre took place on the 28th and 29th of November. And as a result, St. Mary Zion annual feast did not take place on the 30th of November. If, if you have read the report, you will right. know that. So it did not take place on the 30th of November, but the feast took place with hundreds, perhaps thousands of people in attendance. So this is not true. It was broadcast on Ethiopian TVs, but so far Amnesty has not admitted that it reported something that was untrue. So the feast took place on the 30th of November, but they said it did not take place. Could but it be possible that the video of the festival was from a different year? I, I did see the broadcast myself. People oh, were being interviewed. A live stream of it? Live stream, yes, on FANA. Well, it was being reported on FANA Broadcasting Corporate. Thirdly, let's assume that Amnesty accepts that the feast took place. My question would be, had hundreds been massacred on the 29th in Aksum, or on the 28th and 29th of November in Aksum, would hundreds or even thousands have come out on the 30th to celebrate the feast. How would people do that? You know, I, I do not think that that would have happened. But those interviewed, as I said, were upset, not by the massacre of people in the city, but by the fact that many uh, tourists and people across, the Orthodox Christians across the country couldn't attend uh, the, the festival. And fourthly, the federal police were in Aksum on the 30th of November. I saw that um, on uh, FANA Broadcasting Corporate. It was being reported. It was in the fake report. My question would be, have Amnesty interviewed the federal police members who were there? I'm sure the police would have a knowledge about any unlawful killings that would have taken place on the 29th of November um, and indeed on 28th. And fifthly, the Associated Press reported that a deacon witnessed 800 people being killed, which you mentioned earlier. Yeah, um, he estimated around that, yeah. Yeah, he estimated. I don't know if this deacon's report is related to a report by priest Waldemariam. Priest Waldemariam mm -hmm. claims in a video that he was there when the massacre took place and he and others begged the Eritrean soldiers in the name of God, but um, uh, they were told that their God, that's the God of the Aksumites or the Tigrians is not their God, that is the Eritrean God, and they killed the worshippers. And this priest is a fake priest. He is a man called Michael Berihe. Uh, Michael Berihe lives in Boston. Um, I hear that he is now saying, he's now claiming that it was an enactment uh, rather than a claim that he was there, but there is no such disclaimer in, in the video from what, what I saw. But did Amnesty, Amnesty verify this? And they still haven't apologized. The sixth question is, if the massacre story does not stand on the account of Michael Berger's account, but on the account given by refugees in Eastern Sudan, for example, how did these refugees, they were witnesses and survivors according to Amnesty, how did these refugees get to Eastern Sudan? Aksum is in central Tigray, in Northern Ethiopia, so in yeah. Aksum is in central Tigray. To get to Eastern Sudan, one has to travel almost 400 kilometers through Western Tigray. So the Ethiopian forces had blocked all the routes in Western Tigray. How did these refugees get there, get to Eastern, Eastern Sudan? So that is a, a big question for me. 
and amnesty needs to answer that question. And seventhly, we know that some youth who belong to a TPLF group called Samri are in, in the refugee camp and they were interviewed by some reporters and they did admit to being part of this TPLF group. This Samri massacred hundreds of people in a place called Mykadra. Did Amnesty check if these witnesses were from Mykadra? And also Amnesty, Amnesty reporter interviewed the refugees, um, witnesses, those who survived the massacre and uh, people probably um, outside Ethiopia, those people with knowledge of, of the events. But did the Amnesty reporter interview the Ethiopian, Eritrean, and Amhara authorities? Now, how can any report that has not given a fair hearing to the parties involved uh, be credible? You know, it's, uh, that would be a huge question for me. And finally, um, sorry, I, I've taken very long. Any allegation, uh, you know, as I said earlier, must be investigated and those responsible must be brought to justice. And I think there are institutions in Ethiopia that can carry out uh, that investigation and they're doing that. And I believe that Ethiopian government would welcome any support that international partners would like to provide. And I, I don't believe Ethiopians should be seen as those who are not trusted. That to me is an insult. It is like regarding Ethiopians as morally inferior, if you see what I mean. And yeah, I, I mean, by not, not interviewing Ethiopian officials, it implies that there's a distrust of the Ethiopians uh, who may be in the police force or in the federal forces or in the government. Well, yeah, but Ethiopians are not all government officials. There is the Ethiopian right. Human Rights Commission. So Daniel Bakala was someone who suffered under the EPRDF. He was in jail uh, for a period of time. Then he was released. He was shown the way out of the country and he left the country and he worked for various organizations. He did his study and he had equipped himself. And when Abiy Ahmed came to power, one of the people he brought back from abroad was Daniel Bakala. And Daniel is now the head of the Ethiopian Human Rights Commission. Would Daniel want to do something unfair or unjust after suffering so much injustice himself? I don't know, you know, human beings change, of course, but we have to give them the benefit of the doubt. We shouldn't think all Ethiopians or all Africans are untrustworthy. You know, there are trustworthy Ethiopians and we should give them the benefit of the doubt. Would you trust the Trump government? Sorry, I, to, I don't want you to answer that question. Would the Justice Department trustworthy? Did they handle everything properly? But did any African country try to say, well, we want to you know, investigate matters in relation to Russian involvement in the 2016 election because the Justice Department is not doing a very good job, but nobody would have said that. And I think simply because we are poor, uh, to say that we don't trust you, therefore we want to send uh, independent, independent investigators is, to me, it is an insult. But I understand also that African governments have been corrupt and they, um, they have been untrustworthy in many ways, but not all African governments uh, are morally bankrupt. So I think um, we need to take that into account and Ethiopians themselves should be listened. You know, we are talking about 110 million people for goodness sake, uh, not just for 8 million or 6 million people. The Tigray is part of Ethiopia. So we are concerned about the survival of the country, the nation, 110 million people. If Ethiopia becomes a failed state, the whole of the Horn of Africa would be in trouble. So Ethiopia is one single nation, one single country that is keeping the Horn of Africa 
uh, stable. Now Ethiopia is being pushed by Western powers, and I don't know what will happen, but that's why I'm speaking today to you, Megan, because I'm concerned about my country, my people, about 110 million people, including the Tigrians. I received a message from Pastor Tamaskan, who is in, in Shire, um, is looking after thousands of people at the moment who, who are internally displaced in Tigray. And the town of Shire is a big town and we need to do something for them to support Pastor, Pastor Tamaskan and people like that, rather than just pursuing these fabricated and sensationalized stories and trying to destroy the country. That's why I would like to appeal to the American government and other governments that what is happening at the moment to Ethiopia as a country is, is quite unjust. And what happened in Tigray is awful, absolutely awful. Any war is awful. It shouldn't have happened, but it did happen. It happened because TPLF uh, was belligerent, in my view, and the crime was committed. And that crime needs to be, that, to be dealt with. And those who committed the crime should be brought to justice. But people should be supported, should be helped. So that would be that'd be my view. And one point you made before, right, is that, you know, talking about the geopolitics, that Egypt has supported the TPLF, for example, and Egypt wants to build a dam. uh, And Ethiopia is kind of in the way with that. I don't mean to sidetrack too much, but just that there's a lot of other uh, tensions that maybe Westerners don't realize um, that are affecting Ethiopia. Yeah. Uh, huge tensions. And very briefly, Egypt and Ethiopia have never been friends. Egypt has never wanted Ethiopia to become a strong nation. If Ethiopia becomes strong economically, then it will use its resources, including the Blue Nile. So the source of the Nile, as you may know, is Ethiopia. And Ethiopia provides 86% of the waters to the to the Nile River and Egypt benefits from that. And indeed it depends on, on the Nile. Now Ethiopia wants to develop the Nile, the Blue Nile within it. And we are building what we call the Great Ethiopian Renaissance Dam. And Egypt has not wanted Ethiopia to build that dam. And Sudan would benefit from that dam greatly uh, because it's a hydroelectric power will be generated from that dam. But now Egypt has got Sudan on its side and it is supporting Sudan. And as soon as TPLF attacked the Northern Command, when Ethiopia was busy uh, fighting against the TPLF forces, Sudan invaded some territories of Ethiopia. Now the Sudanese army are in Ethiopia. Ethiopia is not in a position, I don't think, to fight against the Sudan. But, you know, the people of Ethiopia will, are waiting to see if Sudan will leave the country or will continue to, to invade Ethiopia. Then that is Egypt and Sudan. And there is Somalia. There is Somaliland and there is Somalia proper. There is Puntland. Puntland is semi-autonomous. Somaliland is a breakaway nation, if you call it. There is... Somalia, the Somalia proper. So Abiy Ahmed supports, or the Ethiopian government supports the Somalian government, which is recognized uh, by UN and the international community. But Kenya wants Somaliland to continue to be a breakaway nation. So yesterday at the UN Security Council, Kenya, our neighbor, supported a statement against Ethiopia. It was Russia and China and India who opposed that statement because of their veto power, uh, China and Russia in particular. The statement wasn't, uh, wasn't agreed. <laughs> now China and Russia are our friends. That's incredible. You know, it's uh, quite funny. Whereas America is against us. The, Joe Biden called Uhuru Kenyatta 
or the president of Kenya to say that he should advise the Ethiopian government or Abiy Ahmed uh, to listen to the international community. And Kamala Harris uh, called the president of the Democratic Republic of Congo, who is the current chair of the African Union, to tell the same. Why do they not call Abiy Ahmed? So it shows that they're against the Ethiopian government, but they're uh, for the people of Ethiopia. That is not going to work. I mean, that will lead to terrible situations. Yeah, and I can understand. I think one of your main points is that the government of Abiy Ahmed has been very good for Ethiopia. So it's a little bit perhaps early to turn on them before investigating what has happened further. You know, I'm not supporter of the prosperity party. I'm not a member of the political party. As I said, I am for the 110 million Ethiopians and that wretched country, uh, beautiful, but wretched country. And they can go to Ethiopia and talk to opposition parties. Some of them I know, I've spoken to them and they are freely operating right now. And there is going to be a national election in June. And um, we are hoping and praying that it is going to be a free and fair election. So that is what needs to be supported. If the international community could support that effort, the Abiy Ahmed government is far from perfect, but the situation is vastly, vastly better than what it used to be. So I think all that needs to be taken into account. Ethiopia is not going to be USA tomorrow. You know, Ethiopia is, it is going to take many years for Ethiopia to be fully democratic state. Um, but it, the democracy has started in Ethiopia, but it needs to mature, needs to grow, but Ethiopia needs to be helped uh, to get there rather than being, being attacked. What do we know uh, that the government is doing for these internally displaced people? I'd love to hear, you know, from this pastor that you talked to, what were the stories of these displaced people and um, what can people do to help these Tigrayan people who have fled? And what do you think is the path forward from here? The people should understand that there are forces that want to destabilize Ethiopia, I appeal to you know, the American government that they should take that into account. And many of us, peace-loving Ethiopians, don't want Ethiopia to be de destabilized. They should help the TPLF forces, the TPLF leadership to surrender and um, to face justice for the crime that they committed. TPLF might be able to continue as a party in Ethiopia. They can still fight for the independence of Tigray politically, but they should fight for the independence of Tigray in a peaceful way rather than uh, in a violent manner. Western nations should help the Tigray People's Liberation Front to do that. That, that is uh, my view. In terms of internally displaced people, what I heard from Pastor Tamaskan was those people were from villages and towns outside the Shire area. There are thousands of them in, in Shire who are needing a lot of help. From what we hear from government reports and also from the World Food Program reports, quite a lot of support is being provided and also USAID, uh, quite a lot of support is being provided at the moment. And the government uh, says, that 70% of the support is provided by the government. It's only 30% that is provided by uh, agencies, outside um, agencies. Many Ethiopians are providing support as well. They are raising money within the country and even the city of Addis Ababa just a few days ago sent over 100 million uh, Ethiopian people and uh, many regions are providing quite a lot of support as well, and they should probably contact you. Um, I wanted to also read this quote to you that I came across that really struck me from the Archdiocese in New York of the Ethiopian Orthodox Church. Um, mm. and this is from Abba Petros. Maybe you read it. 
He said, I think politics in Ethiopia is now off the track. In the West, discourses are between truth, not between truth and falsehood. Two persons with their own truth might debate to win the interest of the people by arguing that their respective truth, policies, or ideas would make the people beneficial. Then the public will judge to choose the best. However, if falsehood gets a chance to be chosen, it would not help you, but drag you to destruction. I'm, I'm an academic and no one should take anything I say or anything anyone says at face value. That's my, my principle. That's what I teach my students as well. What the evidence we have before us should be really beyond any reasonable doubt. So we, we have to ensure that that's the case. And as one scholar said, what we cannot show, we do not know. And if they cannot show any evidence, then they have to admit that they do not know. But hopefully, you know, by God's grace, Ethiopia will survive. Uh, we don't want any turmoil, any turbulence. We want to muddle through uh, the situation we are in. We don't have perfect people, but um, we can move towards perfection, hopefully. So that, that would be my hope. Well, thank you so much. Um, for our listeners on the podcast, feel free to drop us an email. Find us on religionunplugged.com. So thank you again, Desta. Thank you. Thank you, Megan. This episode of the Religion Unplugged podcast was hosted by me, Religion Unplugged Managing Editor, Megan Clark. Edited and produced by Peter Freeby. The Religion Unplugged podcast is a production of religionunplugged.com and is part of The Media Project, a nonprofit dedicated to equipping journalists to cover religion. To read our award-winning global religion news coverage, or to find out more about Religion Unplugged or The Media Project, visit religionunplugged.com or follow us on Twitter at religionmag.